welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Schell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. It is very important to me, I felt like I needed to, to get out and put down in front of you the deep things that I, the Lord has taught me over the years. I've, I've been at this a long time. Actually, I, was, I met the Lord in the baptism of the Holy Spirit when I was 12 years old. Um, and so I, my, my life has been a, a life of, of walking with him in, in the power of God to various degrees, depending on how I was at the time. But I always was in that realm. I'm longing for revival. And by revival, I don't mean a well-run church. I think we already have one. Uh, I think we already have a very vital church. You, 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 this, this summer, just between camps, um, missions of, of all the various kinds, I have no idea how many hundreds of people received the Lord um, because of your service and your faithfulness. It's uh, already a great church. Revival isn't, in my mind, um, uh, isn't, isn't simply a well-run church. It isn't simply a healthy church. Revival is when the people of God, led by the Spirit of the Lord, wherever they're living, wherever they are, uh, begin to share Christ with, with the unbelieving world. And where it spreads like a wildfire. And this does happen. This does happen. But it only happens when the individual believers are empowered, not when you have an organization. As long as it's chained to an organization, as long as it's dependent upon a pastor or a program, something like that, as long as it's hung up on that, it's always stuck. It can be, it can be effective. It will touch lives. But it won't spread like wildfire. It can't go like that. And so the, if I read correctly, and we just finished, uh, if you're new, we just finished, what was it, almost... Was it four years, three years? I don't know. I hate to say. Uh, 115 sermons through the Gospel of John. We, I, we preach through books. That's my, norm, my normal course of things. And, and in that process, we saw Jesus put out his plan. And his plan is quite clear. He says, he says because I go to the Father, the Holy Spirit will come and he will dwell in you. And as he is in you, and he brings the Father and me, as this is dwelling in you, you will do ministry the way I've been doing ministry. I only do what I see the Father do. I, say, I speak what I hear the Father speak. In other words, I'm constantly in a responsive mode following the lead of God. And in that, we see the results of it, don't we, as we read the Gospels. Wow. People healed, people saved, just a, a remarkable impact when he followed. And then he says, now, because of what I've done, you're going to be, I'm your head, you're my body, we're going to keep doing this. And through you, I'm going to carry this into the world. Well, this is critical. And if you and I do not move in the things of the Spirit, it can't happen. Everything of God's agenda, as far as I can see it, in the New Testament is contingent upon not, a, not, not an organized church, but on the, on the Spirit-filled individual. Yes, we come together for strength. Yes, we come together for refreshment. Yes, we come together for ministry. But it is the, it's the seeds that the Lord casts into the world are, are us. Us with life in us. 
People with the Holy Spirit dwelling within them, cast like seeds into the soil of this world around us. The Bible says where sin abounds, what happens? Grace does much more abound. Now, I would suggest to you that we've got some sin around us. I would suggest to you that our society is struggling. And I would also suggest, in that case, then grace does much more abound. That in times like that, God can do, will do even greater things. I believe he wants to do a marvelous work. I, my observation, just, just, and I've been at this a while, my observation is people are as, are as responsive to the Lord as they've ever been in, in my lifetime. Arguably more so. They just come to us more broken. They need more power, more healing, more of the work of God. But they are not, I mean, I, I, I read, I follow more than I should what's going on, and it's depressing. But when I deal with individuals or people, I see openness and hunger. We, 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 we can't go down the street and, and minister in a neighborhood and not have more kids than we can handle. And parents show up. Where, where is this post-Christian America? I'm looking for it. Where, where is it where nobody wants Christ? I, I haven't found it yet. In fact, the nice thing is we're so post-Christian. We're, you know, there's, there's an adolescent stage to rebellion against God. People early on when they rebel against God. This isn't my sermon. I'm just having fun. <laughs> There's an adolescent stage when people rebel against God. You know, you sort of throw off the traits, all of the traces of, oh, that held you in bondage to religion and morality. And now you're going to live real life. And then you discover that the way of the transgressor is hard. That as you walked in all of your freedom... You blew your family to pieces. You're addicted as all get out. And life, you, get, you end up alone and drunk. <laughs> too, true, isn't it? Nasty true. You're sitting in front of the TV with a remote and a glass of wine. There you go. That's life, baby. And what happens is, as, as you do that, you get in it long enough, there becomes this cry of the heart, isn't there somebody... Who can rescue me? Is there somebody who can give me life and freedom? I am so in bondage. I am so lonely. I am so angry. I'm miserable. Hallelujah. That's a society ready for Jesus. The real one. Not religion. The real one. And that's why we're in this subject on the Holy Spirit. I, I deeply, it's very important to me. That you and I understand what the Bible says about it. And that you are baptized in the Holy Spirit. That you are free in the gifts of the Spirit, including praying in tongues. That this is part of your life so that you can hear God and respond to him. When we are doing that, then what you look at isn't, a, isn't an assembly. You just look, you're looking at a whole bunch of seeds that God will cast into all of the fields we live in. Our homes, our workplace, our neighborhoods, wherever it is, he'll have divine appointments for us left and right. And that's how the gospel really spreads. And that's how you have a move. I think God can do a great thing in western Washington. Do you believe that? That's why we're doing this. Today I'm going to talk to you uh, out of a passage 
It's 1 Corinthians 13. We're going we're gonna to read that in a minute. Um, verses 8 through 12. 13, I'll take it. Um, this is a passage which is used to say that the gifts of the Spirit are not for today. It's about the only one anyone can find. So it's pretty much, once we've dealt with this, we've dealt with it all. There, but it is used and taught in churches a lot. And it's used to say that the gifts of the Spirit, virtually everything I've just said, passed away with the early church. Either it ended with when the, first, the, the, the last apostle died, that would have been John, or when the canon was formed, or when the scriptures were actually penned. I mean, people argue about which, when it is. But at whatever point that, the, that the, the, this miraculous work of the Spirit was lifted. And so I'm, I'm going to present it today as respectfully and kindly as I know how, which is questionable. But I intend to. And to present it that way and to show you what I think the scripture says and why I think that. Why? Because I want you and I want me absolutely free to move forward in the things of God. And to expect that when you hear Jesus talk about uh, greater works than these shall you do. Because I go to the Father. You will not think to yourself, well that's for the twelve. It's not for us. That passed away. That you realize he's talking to you. That he's making promises to you. That these are your promises. As well as theirs. So Holy Spirit, we open our ears. We would listen to you. And to the word of God. We open our eyes to see the things of God. And the spirit we present to you. Tender believing hearts to that which is true. Lord would you speak to us. And open your word. And grace me to get out of the way. In Jesus name. Amen. All right, here we go. I'm going to read all of 1 Corinthians 13 very quickly, without comment, by the grace of God. Paul says this, If I speak with the tongues of men and angels and, ha and do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, I do not have, and, but do not have love, I am nothing. Would you notice all of that was very Pentecostal? No, he says, and he says, if I don't have love, it's meaningless. And if I have all possessions, give my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, it is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, and here's where we begin to get into our text, love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. Would you say that? When the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. 
When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, love, abide, these three. But the greatest of these is what? It's love. Amen. All right, let's look at our text. There are sincere Bible-believing Christians who have been taught that such gifts of the Holy Spirit as prophecy, speaking in tongues, and the word of knowledge were only meant for the early church. The idea behind that teaching is that God chose to perform such miracles during the first decades of the church's existence because the New Testament had not yet been written. Because those first century disciples did not have a complete Bible, God needed to speak to them directly. And he sent special miracles to confirm his choice of the apostles and the truth of the gospel they preached. But according to this teaching, once the New Testament was complete, and there is still much discussion as to when that moment arrived, then as I mentioned, uh, when do you decide that the New Testament was complete? Was it when the final word was penned? Was it when the last apostle died? Uh, was it when it was distributed? Was it when the canon was formed? In other words, the, the, the set books of the, New, of, the, of the New Testament were decided by the church that these are authoritative and the others are not. Uh, when, did it, when did that happen? Then these sign gifts were no longer needed, so God stopped speaking to his people in that way. From that point on, believers were to hear him speak only through his written word. The passage of scripture, which is most often quoted in support of this theory, is the following. Now, I just read it, but listen to it carefully. Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. And of course, in that context, I'm thinking Paul means the word of knowledge, that kind of supernatural knowledge. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. But when I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I have also been fully known. But in order for this passage to mean that such gifts as prophecy, tongues, and the word of knowledge passed away when the New Testament was written. The Greek word translated here as the perfect must be understood to mean the completed Bible containing both Old and New Testaments. Those who believe that this theory, which is often called cessationism, have you heard the term? It's built on the word cease. Cessationism, that which, in other words, the, we, those who are cessationists believe that the gifts have ceased. Here Paul's saying that prophecy, tongues, and the re revelational gifts, such as the word of knowledge, which he refers to as the partial, were imperfect substitutes to, to be used only until the New Testament was finished. At that point, God stopped sending them. Because they were incomplete. They were, they were like a child's understanding of things when compared to the full revelation of scripture. They were so limited that they were like looking in an ancient mirror made of polished metal. What they presented was indistinct and blurred compared to the clear 
face-to-face revelation of the written documents. And based on that assumption, that God stopped speaking through those gifts after the Bible was completed, the only possible conclusion which can be drawn about any prophecies, gifts of tongues, or word of knowledge which are spoken today, is that they cannot possibly be from God. Because he stopped speaking that way nearly 2,000 years ago. Did you follow that? Think through the implications of that. If God stopped doing those things 2,000 years ago, according to that that theory, anything we hear today is at best human-generated thoughts or at worst demonic utterances. Let me stop a second. Interestingly enough, Cessationists believe that the devil is still quite active. I had a, a it's interesting, I, my mother's passed away and many of you knew her. Um, she was uh, somebody who, who, who took us and got us involved in all sorts of, of religious things. And it was an interesting ride and I, I, I enjoyed it. Somehow, she, and we, we, I think I was home uh, on vacation back in California f- for, uh, from college, or it might have been high school years. I, ca- I just can't place it, but I can sure remember the moment. We, we had a lunch with a man by the name of Jack Chick. Now, Jack Chick was, an, was a, a cartoonist, an illustrator, and he did these tracks. These, one of his famous tracks was called G.I. Joe, but he had these, these little tracks that he would illustrate, and they were enormously interesting because they were gory. Uh, they, they, he showed people in hell. He showed, oh, it was just, it was like, bah. So, it, but, it, but it has that quality to it of like, like, you want to read it. <laughs> so these things really were distributed. And uh, I, I, I have them all. Uh, I'm pretty sure I, I have. Uh, anyway, we were invited by him, and I don't know how that happened, to lunch. Just my mom and me and him. And... Uh, I can still remember the, the, the restaurant. And he began to talk about, uh, my mom, I think, probably broached the subject. Maybe it was me. But he said, no, all of the gifts have passed away. The uh, supernatural gifts, like speaking in tongues and prophecy and word and all of those things have passed away. They passed away when the New Testament was written. He said what I've basically just said. And he said, but... The devil, he said, he can, you know, he, he's, he's doing all kinds of, of things. He can, in fact, he can do any miracle, any miracle at all, um, except raise the dead. And, and he got kind of animated and, you know, in it, and he says, you know, the only thing he can't do is raise the dead. So, and, and I, uh, I was, um, anyway, I said, so God isn't speaking now. We, no, we, we don't do miracles. No, doesn't heal us. No. But the devil can do all, can the devil heal? Yeah, well, yes, in his own way. Can, can, does he, he, and, and we went through this list, and the, the devil did everything. And then I said, I was a difficult young man. I, if you, I was, I'm, I'm, I'm much more temperate now. <laughs> I said, so you're telling me that the devil's very powerful and active, but God isn't doing anything but leaves us a book? It was pretty soon that the lunch was over. But here's what's interesting. He could not reply to me. I mean, the, you, you cannot go to the Bible other than the only passage you can, you can even try to, to make say that is the one I'm, just, I'm reading with you today. 
There's nothing else to even start from that I'm aware of. And, and he, so he didn't go back to the Bible and say, well, yes, look at this. He couldn't. We just had to stop. When I went to Fuller Seminary, um, and when I was doing a Master of Divinity there, uh, one of my professors was a, was, a, was a well-known teacher, and a man I drew a great deal from and still revere, uh, George Eldon Ladd. And George Eldon Ladd was, was of this cessationist background. Um, and I had biblical exegesis from him, a couple of courses with that. And uh, he would, would, was a strong kind of gruff teacher. And one time uh, we were on this subject, and I think it was from this passage uh, in which he had brought it up that these signs shall pass away and these things are not for today. And uh, I asked him in class, it was all men in those days, probably 40 of us or something in that class, a pretty good sized class. I asked him and I said, sir, um, so you're saying that these things have passed away, but I can show you passages in which Paul says we should do them. Um, who, who am I to believe? And um, what he did and I, I'm really ashamed of this, actually, is he stood there and wept. He didn't answer a word. He just stood and wept. Uh, he, now, he was old, and he was on medication. And uh, I'm not throwing stones at that. Uh, but what he couldn't do, and the reason he wept was out of just sheer frustration. There's nothing to say. When I went to Fuller, and I have a couple of degrees from there, when I went to Fuller, I thought I was going to get in with the big boys. And they were going to show me in the Bible how this, this Pentecostal stuff was wrong. That they were going to take me to texts and prove that it was, it was confused and it was mistaken. And that I'd been led down a long, wrong path. And I, I wasn't wild about going there, but I, in, in my mind, the Bible's the authority. Do you agree? The Bible is the final authority in all matters of faith and practice to me, and I, I, I believe that. So if indeed it said that, then I would, I would let go. And I was afraid, and so I'm kind of going into it like this, you know, thinking, here we go, here we go. Somebody's going to show me. They're going to show me that I'm wrong. We're, we're, we're a bunch of nuts. What I learned over, the, over those years was that the Bible is deeply spiritual. It expects these things. I learned that this was the truth and that the, you have to spet, argue what, uh, uh, strange arguments. You have to twist things. You have to do things to the text to try to make it say that we should not have that. That's what I want to show you today, that this text, when you look at it straightforwardly and honestly, let's see what it says. Since this theory of cessationism is widely taught in certain areas of the church, and since this passage is central to that teaching, it is important for us to study what Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, to see if indeed that this, that this was his meaning. If it was, then all attempts to minister in the miraculous or spoken gifts of the Spirit should be stopped immediately. But if it is not his meaning, then we must answer the question, what is his meaning? And to do that, we must discover two things. What is the perfect? And why will it cause the partial to be done away? 
Let's look at the Corinthian church for a minute. One of the main problems Paul observed in the church at Corinth was that many of its members used the gifts of the Spirit selfishly. They operated in God's power, but they weren't guided by love. Paul opened his letter to them by acknowledging that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, so that you are not lacking in any gift. And I take that to mean his, he's, he's saying you have all of these spoken gifts, you have all of these revelational knowledges, you work in those kinds of things. He meant that by that statement, a large percentage of the church was functioning freely in various forms of prophetic speech and knowledge. But as his letter goes on to reveal, their character development had not kept up with their giftedness. They were divided, proud, and tolerant of flagrant immorality. Some had even returned to idol temples and apparently were participating in the sacred meals and in the prostitution that was part of the worship of the goddess Aphrodite. There's a lot of excavation now that's been done on Corinth. And they have all these, you know, the ruins of a lot of temples and all of that. There was a temple to Aphrodite, an enormous temple to Aphrodite. And associated with that temple were one, a thousand prostitutes. And uh, you would have these sacred meals and then you would, uh, part of the worship, you see, of fertility, all of that kind of thing, of stimulating fertility was prostitution, male and female. And so that, all of that kind of thing was going on. But in Paul's mind, one of their greatest failures was their lovelessness. Because it spoiled everything they did for God. It ruined their communion services, the bread and the cup, to the point that some of them had fallen under judgment. You remember when Paul says, some of you are weak, you're sick, and you are asleep, uh, meaning dead. Uh, he was, they had... They, well, I won't go through it. I'll tell you another time. But they had ruined their communion services. They had, it had soured their church gatherings to the point that Paul considered them to be damaging rather than helpful. He said, you come together for, the, for worse rather than for better. In other words, I'd rather you didn't go to church. It's ruining you. Uh, he said each individual was coming to the church only to get a blessing for themselves, not minister to others. And certainly not to care for the needs of their unsaved guests or the new believers who were present. So Paul devoted several chapters of this letter to show them how God viewed their loveless attitude. And to explain how the gifts of the Spirit operate when they're used properly. Chapter 13 is often called the love chapter. And it's indeed one of the most beautiful statements ever made about love. But it was never meant to stand alone. It's an integral part of Paul's correction of this loveless church. He wrote it to explain what real love, God's kind of love, looks like. Because he was dealing with a group of people who clearly didn't know. He wrote it to show them how unloving they were and to warn them of what would happen when Jesus returned. He says the gifts will disappear because they won't be needed anymore. And what Jesus will look for when he examines our lives is above Every other quality, love, real love, selfless love, just like his, the perfect. The Greek word in this verse, which is translated as the perfect, is teleos. It usually refers to something that's gone through various stages of development and has arrived at its goal. It has become mature, complete, fully grown. It has reached the ideal. 
It's used to describe people or things. For example, it might describe a building that's gone through phases of construction and is finally complete. It might refer to the final stage of a rose which has grown from a green bud into a beautiful flower. It might picture a human being who has passed from infancy into adulthood. And it's often used in the Bible to point to someone who has reached full spiritual maturity. Now, I'm gonna, the, the example, I'll give you a whole list of those, and there's many more, by the way. I just took some of the best. That Ephesians 4 passage, remember Paul says, uh, God has given us uh, apostles, prophets, pastors, and teachers for the building up, of the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. And then, he, and then he says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God. And then he says this, to a mature, is the way it's translated in my Bible, to a mature man. Do you know what the word mature is? Teleos. To this developed man, this person who has now reached full stature. And then he, then he says this beautifully, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So in Paul's mind, what does spiritual maturity look like? Jesus Christ. We are all being conformed into his image. When we're like him, and certainly in his love. When we're like him, then we are mature. We're teleos. So he says, that's, that, that's the, the, the word. He or she has become the person God wanted him or her to become. Nothing is missing Nothing is undeveloped. So in this verse, Paul is telling us that we are waiting for something or someone who is mature, complete, and has reached God's ideal. And all doubt about what or whom he, to whom he's re referring disappears when we read verse 12. Let's hear it again. Now, this is my translation. For we still see through a, through a mirror, and then we use the word dimly. I'm going to tell you the Greek word. You know, you'll recognize it. Enigma. It's a, get it? Enigma. Enigma. Paul says we still see through a, a mirror, in a mirror, enigma. Now, in the Old Testament, I've told you many times, the Old Testament was translated about 200 B.C. into Greek because the people didn't read Hebrew in many of the dispersal communities. And so if you look in the Greek Old Testament, you'll find very few uses of this word, and, but one of them is right there in uh, Numbers chapter 12. Let me tell you the story. You've got uh, Moses married a woman from Cush. You know where Cush is? Sudan. No question. Uh, in fact, there's the, the archaeology is enormous on this, on Cush. A uh, huge empire, pyramids, Enormous cities. I had no idea. Um, I've been learning now. And so there's a question where Cush is. They're south of Egypt. Um, he married a Cushite woman. And his sister and his brother were furious. Uh, I'm not going into that. They, the Lord uh, came down in a pillar. The, remember the pillar? It comes down and it stood in front of the tent of meeting there in the tabernacle. And he called Miriam and Aaron to him. And they stood before this pillar of fire. And the Lord spoke out of the pillar. And what he said to them is he, is he, is he says, he says, I speak to, to men through prophecies and through visions. 
And he said, when I, I speak through, my, through Moses, I speak with him mouth to mouth, as one man speaks to another. He says, I speak to you, to you prophet, through prophets, and there's the word enigma, dimly, um, through prophecy and vision. And then he says, how dare you challenge Moses? And then, but you remember what happened with this? Struck Miriam with leprosy. And then Moses had to cry out on her behalf for healing. And the Lord says, well, I, I, I'm gonna, she's at least going to go out and spend a week <laughs> unclean outside of the camp. Uh, I'm not letting this go. And then, she, then they moved on. And so all of Israel waited while Miriam had to wait out that week of uncleanness. To show you what God thought about the matter, by the way. For we still see through a mirror enigma, through prophetic utterances and visions. But then, face to face, mouth to mouth. I still know in part, but then I shall fully know just as I was fully known. When Paul speaks of being face to face and says we shall fully know, just know God, just as we are now fully known by him, he can only be talking about the return of Jesus Christ. And the fact that when he comes, he will bring the kingdom of God to earth. There is no place in all of scripture where the term teleos means the Bible. And never does the Bible speak of itself as the perfect. The closest thing I could find was Psalm 19 verse 7 where it says, The law of the Lord is perfect, making wise the simple. By the way, the Hebrew word, which is there for for perfect, uh, translated as perfect, taman, means complete, fully developed. <laughs> it's exactly what we've been saying teleos means. He's simply saying the Bible is, is complete. And never does the Bible speak of itself as the perfect. So a proper understanding of what Paul says in this passage is that the gifts of the Spirit have been given by God to his people until Jesus comes again. And that we are to be guided by his love in how and when we use them. The partial. Paul calls the gifts of the Spirit the partial, and we need to understand why. Are they partial because they are imperfect? In other words, is he saying they are part right and part wrong, part God and part human in origin? Let me, let me stop a second. In practice, I would say that's generally true. <laughs> You know, we've all heard those prophecies. We've all given them, uh, maybe, and, uh, in which we started out well, and that was all God, and then somewhere along the line, he quit, and we kept going. <laughs> so in practice, couldn't we say that, things, that, that there is a, a human element, a, an imperfect element that gets brought into the, the gifts of the Spirit? Uh, yes, but that's a matter of, of us learning to operate and learning to stop when God stops and start when God starts and say only what he says. That's a matter of discipline and maturity and character is what that is. But is he saying, is that why he calls them partial? Or does he call them partial because they are incomplete, limited, falling short of the full revelation of a matter? I think he answers this question in his letter to the Romans. There in a chapter which emphasizes that believers are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, he says, for we know, why don't you read this with me? For we know that the whole creation 
groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. That is such a powerful passage there in, 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 in Romans 8. Paul says that the creation is groaning, waiting for the manifestation, the revelation of the sons of God, meaning you and me in resurrected form. Waiting for us to take our place in in our resurrected bodies and to rule and to reign on Christ's behalf as his deputies. It's waiting for that righteous age when we will rise up. Imagine that, the entire, the plants, the animals, are all longing for you and I to be righteous and to lead them as God created us to do. What did, what did Adam do when he was created? He named the animals. Psalm 8 says he's put under our, our feet all, you know, all of these things, sheep and oxen, beasts of the fields, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, and that which passes through the paths of the sea. We're to rule them righteously, not, not exploit them and destroy them. Uh, so it, it says all creation, it's groaning, it's dying, it's cursed, it's living under all of this, waiting for the day when we'll rise up. And then he says this, not only this, not only are they groaning, but we groan with them. And then to be clear with it, he says, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit. He says, we who have, and he's talking about, and he's, this is whole chapter, he's talking about the baptism of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, the power of, of God living inside us. Even we groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. You say, wait a minute, I thought I already was one. Well, there's something to be finished. And then he says, the next phrase is that, the redemption of our body. What's the redemption of our body? It's the resurrection. Do you realize that not, we're not done yet? When people tell you, we've all things have become new, it's just not true. Check your, your bodies, it probably is just as nasty and old as mine. I mean, not as old, but... You see, we still have, and the Bible does not duck this at all. It looks it right in the eye. It says, that we still live in these fallen bodies. And in our flesh, we still have that stuff. Our spirit's new. Completely. Loves the Lord, wants to please him, is a child of God, joined to him. There's no barrier between our spirit and the spirit of God. We're joined intimately, just in a marriage virtually, with Christ himself. You follow? All that's brand new. That's new and it's real and it's a new creation. But my body, I've still got it. It isn't finished yet. It will be when it's resurrected. Because you see, we're going to be not not. Free spirits, we are going to be resurrected men and women, living on a new earth in a new heaven. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah, it's all very real and very, very tangible stuff. So Paul says, we, but okay, back to my point. Having the first fruits of the Spirit. Say first fruits of the Spirit. Here he's describing believers as people who have the first fruits of the Spirit. He's referring to the promise of the Father, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, with the Holy Spirit, and the gifts that are released by his indwelling presence. And by calling it a first fruits, he's using a very familiar term in Judaism. The first fruits was an important part of Israel's worship. It was the first cutting of the harvest, 
which was brought to the temple. It was a small portion of a much larger harvest. And of course, what was presented to the Lord was never flawed or damaged. It was beautiful grain, the best, or fruit, but it was incomplete. It was partial. It wasn't the whole field or orchard. You would cut, you would, in fact, you, if you had a, a wheat field, you, you, you'd, you'd mark off a section that was dedicated to the Lord. Uh, it would be your best, and you'd mark it off. If you had, a, if you had trees, you would actually uh, put little tie things around certain apples or, or the grapes or something, the ones that are really good dedicated to the Lord. And then you'd take these, and you'd take them in the basket, and you'd present them to the Lord at the temple. Now, what you're saying is, Lord, all my harvest belongs to you. You're my source. I worship you. And so it's a beautiful thing. And Paul says, you and I have the first fruits of the, of the Spirit. We have been given a portion of what we will have much more. The day will come, the whole harvest comes in. The day will come, we'll inherit the whole, all that God has for us in, in the resurrection. This, we'll live on an earth which is so in, immersed in the spirit that it'll be like the waters cover the sea. It'll transform everything. We go, that's our future. But we now have our first, our first fruits, our foretaste of the powers of the age to come, says, says Hebrews. For, we know, for when Paul says we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. He's telling us that the gifts of the Spirit represent only a small portion of the blessings God has in store for us. When Jesus arrives bringing God's kingdom to earth, we will have far more than any gift of the Spirit can give us now. Who will need a gift of healing after they're resurrected? Who will need a prophecy and with all... When all the promises have arrived. Who will need the spirit to speak in tongues when our old fleshly mind is gone. And we can boldly approach the throne of God. And who will need a word of knowledge when we know as we are known. So in one sense we are all cessationists. Because we all recognize that Paul says the gifts of the spirit will cease. The question we must answer is not will they cease. It's when, did Paul say, they would cease. And your answer in mind to that question will depend on what or who we believe the perfect is. Is it the completion of the New Testament? Or is it the arrival of Jesus Christ? And our answer will dramatically affect the way we live out our discipleship. It will determine whether we view the book of Acts as a model that we are to follow or merely a history that we are to admire. It will either press us to seek to do what Jesus did, or caution us to reject the supernatural, because those things are not for today. In this lesson, I have given you my answer. What's yours? Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.